Chapter Sixteen of the History of Standard Oil, Volume Two by Ida Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Sixteen, Part One: The Price of Oil. It is quite possible that in keeping the attention fixed so long on Mr. Rockefeller's oil campaign, the reader has forgotten the reason why it was undertaken. The reason was made clear enough at the start by Mr. Rockefeller himself. He and his colleagues went into their first venture, the South Improvement Company, not simply because it was a quick and effective way of putting everybody but themselves out of the refining business, but because everybody but themselves being put out, they could control the output of oil and put up its price. There is no man in this country who would not quietly and calmly say that we ought to have a better price for these goods the secretary of the South Improvement Company told the Congressional Committee, which examined him when it objected to a combination for raising prices. Four years after the failure of the first great scheme, a similar one went into effect. What was its object? J. J. Vandergrift, one of the directors of the Standard Oil Company at that time, questioned once under oath as to what they meant to do, said, simply to hold up the price of oil, to get all we can for it. Nobody pretended anything else at the time. The refiners and shippers who are in the association intend there shall be no competition. It is a struggle for a margin. The scope of the association is an attempt to control the refining of oil with the ultimate purpose of advancing its price and reaping a rich harvest in profits. These are some of the comments of the contemporary press. The published interviews with the leaders confirm these opinions. Mr. Rockefeller, always discreet in his remarks, denied that the scheme was to make a corner in oil. It was to protect the oil capital against speculation and to regulate prices. H. H. Rogers was more explicit. The price of oil today is 15 cents per gallon, March 1875. The proposed allotment of business would probably advance the price to 20 cents. Oil to yield a fair profit should be sold for twenty-five cents per gallon. What was the exact status of this refining business out of which it was necessary to make more in the year 1871 when the first scheme to control it was hatched? The simplest and safest way to study this question is by means of the chart of prices on pages 194 and 195. On this chart the line A shows the variation in the average monthly price per gallon of export oil in barrels in New York from 1866 to June 1, 1904. The line B shows the average monthly price per gallon of crude oil in bulk at the wells. A glance at the chart will show the difference or margin between the two prices. It is out of this difference that the refiner must pay the cost of transporting, manufacturing, barreling, and marketing his product, and get his profits. Now, in 1866, the year after Mr. Rockefeller first went into business, he had, as this chart shows, an average annual difference of 35 cents a gallon between what he paid for his oil and what he sold it for. In 1867 he had from 26 and a half to 20 cents. In 1868 from 20 to 22 and a half. In 1869 from 21 to 18. In 1870 from 20 to 15. There were many reasons why this margin fell so enormously in these three years. All of the refiners' expenses had rapidly decreased, 
1866 but two railroads came into the oil country. By 1872 there were four connections, and freights fell in consequence. In 1866 carrying oil from the wells by pipeline was first practiced with success. By 1872 all oil was gathered by pipes, thus saving the tedious and expensive operations of teaming. Tank cars for carrying crude oil in bulk had replaced barrels and rack cars. The iron tank holding 20,000 barrels was used instead of the wooden tank holding 1,000 barrels. On every side there had been economies, and because of them the margin had fallen. But not only were the expenses coming down, so were the profits. The money which had been made in refining oil had led to a rapid multiplication of refineries at all the centers. In 1872 there was a daily refining capacity of about 46,000 barrels in the country, and the daily consumption of that year had been but 15,000 barrels. This large capacity produced the liveliest competition in selling, and every year the margin of profit grew smaller. Now it is natural that men should struggle to keep up a profit. The refiners had become accustomed to making from 25% to 50%, and even more on every gallon of oil they put out. They had the same extravagant notion of what they should make as the oil producers of those early days had. No oil producers thought in the sixties that he was succeeding if his wells did not pay for themselves in six months. And as their new industry slowly but surely came under the laws of trade, increased its production, was subjected to severe competition, as they saw themselves, in order to sustain their business, forced to practice economies and to accept smaller profits, they loudly complained. There was never a set of men who found it harder to accept the limitations of economic laws than the oil producers of Pennsylvania. The oil refiners showed the same dislike of the harness, and in 1871, as we have seen, Mr. Rockefeller and a few of his friends combined to throw it off. What they proposed to do was simply to get all the refineries of the country under their control, and thereafter make only so much oil as they could sell at their own interpretation of a paying price. There was not enough profit in the margin of 1871. Now what was the profit? According to the best figures accessible of the cost of oil refining at that day, a man who sold a gallon of oil at twenty-four and a quarter cents the average official price for that year, made a profit of not less than one and a quarter cents, fifty-two and a half cents a barrel. Josiah Lombard, a large independent refiner of New York City, when questioned by the Congressional Committee which in 1872 looked into Mr. Rockefeller's scheme for making oil dearer, said that his concern was making money on this margin. We could ship oil and do very well. A. H. Tack, told the Congressional Committee of 1888, which was trying to find out why he had been obliged to go out of the refining business in 1873, that he could have made 12 per cent on his capital with a profit of 10 cents a barrel. Schofield, Sherber, and Teagle of Cleveland made a profit of 34 cents a barrel in 1875 and cleared $40,000 on an investment of $65,000. Fifty-two cents a barrel profit then was certainly not to be despised. The South Improvement Company gentlemen were not modest in the matter of profits, however, and they launched the scheme whose basic principles have figured so largely in the development 
of the Standard Oil Trust. The success which Mr. Rockefeller had in getting the refiners of the country under his control and the methods he took to do it we have traced. It will be remembered that for a brief period in 1872 and 1873 he held together an association pledged to curtail the output of oil, but that in July 1873 it went to pieces. It will be recalled that three years after, in 1875, he put a second association into operation, which in a year claimed a control of 90% of the refining power of the country, and in less than four years controlled 95%. This large percentage Mr. Rockefeller has not been able to keep, but from 1879 to the present day there has not been a time when he has not controlled over 80% of the oil manufacturing of the country. Today he controls about 83%. Now it is generally conceded that the man or men who control over 70% of a commodity control its price, within limits, very strict limits too, such is the force of economic laws. In the case of the Standard Oil Company, the control is so complete that the price of oil, both crude and refined, is actually issued from its headquarters. Now with the help of a chart, let us see what Mr. Rockefeller and his colleagues have been able to do from 1872 to 1904 with their power over the price of oil. The first association which worked was brought about late in 1872. What happened? Prices for refined oil were run up from 23 cents a gallon in June to 27 cents a gallon in November, and the margin increased from 13.6 cents to 17.7 cents. From a profit of about one and a half cents a gallon, they rose to one of over four cents. Unfortunately, however, the refiners of that period were not educated to the self-restraint necessary to carry out this scheme. They very soon failed to keep down their output of oil and overstocked the market, and the whole machine went to pieces. Mr. Rockefeller had been able to make oil dear for a short time, but only for a short time. Worse than that, what he had been able to do brought severe public condemnation. It has indeed produced exactly the result the economists tell us too high prices must produce, limitation of the market and stimulation of competition in rival goods. Mr. Rockefeller's second scheme to work out the good of the oil business by making oil dear resulted in decreasing oil exports for the first time since the discovery of oil. It also increased one of the chief grievances of the American refinery. That was the exporting of the crude oil to be refined in Europe. Where the exports of crude had been something over 11 million gallons in 1871, they were now over 16 millions and it set the shale oil factories of Scotland to work merrily. It was cheaper for Great Britain to use oil from Scottish shales than to buy oil sold under Mr. Rockefeller's great plan for benefiting the oil business. So, for the time, the scheme fell down. As the diagram shows, the margin dropped rapidly back after this brief success from 18 to 13 cents, nor did it stay there. With the return of competition in the fall of 1873, it continued to drop rapidly. By the end of the year, it was down to 11 cents, by the end of 1874 to 9. What had done it? A decline in expenses coming from the multiplication of pipelines, 
reduction in freight charges, and free competitions in the markets. Nothing else. In spite of the obvious economic effects of his scheme in 1872, Mr. Rockefeller did not give up his theory that to make oil dear was for the good of the business. He went steadily ahead, developing quietly his plan of a union of all refiners pledged to limit their output of oil to an allotment he should assign, to accept the freight rates he should arrange for, to buy and sell at the prices he set. It was a year before the alliance was nearly enough complete to make its power felt. By the summer of 1876 it claimed to have nine-tenths of the refiners in the country in line. At that time a situation rose in the crude oil market well calculated to help it in its intention to raise prices. This was a falling off in the production of crude oil. An advance in its price had come in the summer of 1876. Refined had, of course, responded to the rise. But as the fall came on and the exporters prepared to load their cargoes, the syndicate demanded a price for refined much above that for which the market price of crude called. The embargo which followed has already been described in Chapter 7 of this narrative. It was as straight a hold-up as our commercial history offers, rich as it is in that sort of operations. From October to February, refined oil was held at a price purely arbitrary. It was the first fruits of the great scheme. The winter's work was a great one for the Standard Combination. It not only demonstrated that Mr. Rockefeller was correct in his theory that the way to make oil dear was to refuse to sell it cheap, but not since the coup of 1872 with the South Improvement Company had Mr. Rockefeller reaped such rewards. The profits were staggering. One of the leading gentlemen in this pretty affair told the writer once that he had sold one cargo at 35 cents a gallon, oil which cost him on board the ship a trifle under ten cents. Today one-fourth of a cent profit a gallon is considered large on export oil. The Standard Oil Company of Ohio had always paid a good dividend, but the year of this raid, 1877, it surpassed all bounds. On a capitalization of $3,500,000, it paid $3,248,650.01 only a fraction less than one hundred percent. One of its stockholders, the late Samuel Andrews, when on the witness stand in 1879, said they might have paid the dividend twice over and had money to spare. The profits were great, but notice the forces set in motion by this coup. The exporters were angry. The buyers in Europe were angry. If the Americans are going to force up prices in this way, they said, we will not buy their refined oil. We will import their crude and refine it ourselves. We will go back to shale oil. A first result, then, of this attempt to hold prices up to a point conspicuously out of proportion to the raw product was that the exports of illuminating oil fell off. They were less by a million gallons in 1878 than in 1877. In the United States, the market was threatened in the same way. There had been much trouble in the years just preceding these events with extortionate prices for gas, particularly in New York and Brooklyn. Illuminating oil was so much cheaper that it had been largely substituted, but this artificial forcing of the oil market in 1876 and 1877 
caused the threat to return the next year to gas. The effect on the refiners who were operating with Mr. Rockefeller in running arrangements was decidedly bad. Each refiner was under bonds to use only a certain percentage of his capacity and to shut down entirely if Mr. Rockefeller said so. Schofield, Shermer, and Teagle, independents of Cleveland, who had yielded to the attractiveness of Mr. Rockefeller's scheme and had gone into a running arrangement with him to limit their output, made $2.52 a barrel on their oil from July 1876 to July 1877. They had been satisfied with 34 cents profit a barrel the year before. Since making oil paid so well, why not make more? Why keep their allotment down to exactly 85,000 barrels, as they had agreed, when they were prepared to make 180,000? They did not. They put out a few extra thousand barrels each year. Others did the same. It was, of course, fatal to the good of the oil business. Not only did these profits tempt many refiners to overrun their allotment, the few independents left profited by the prices and increased their plants. The great Empire Transportation Company combined refineries with its pipelines as Mr. Rockefeller was adding pipelines to his refineries. Thus, competition was stimulated. The effect on the men who produced oil was, of course, bad. They had found it impossible at any time, while the refined was kept so high, to force crude up to a corresponding point, though every effort was made. The producers threatened to combine and refine their own oil. When the Empire Transportation Company went into refining, the producers heartily favored the movement, and throughout the next year a severe competition kept prices down. The empire was finally wiped out. The producers aroused by this failure combined against the standard in one of the greatest associations they ever had. From 1878 to 1880 they fought continuously to restore competition. They secured the introduction into Congress of a bill to regulate interstate commerce. They fought for more drastic laws against railroad discrimination in the state of Pennsylvania. They persuaded the state to prosecute the Pennsylvania Railroad for discrimination. They indicted Mr. Rockefeller and eight of his colleagues for criminal conspiracy. And they supported by money and influence a scheme for a seaboard pipeline connected with the independent refineries. If one will look at the chart, he will see graphically the effect on Mr. Rockefeller's ambition of this fundamentally sound independent movement. The margin between crude and refined, thrust up to over 20 cents by the combination of 1878, fell rapidly under the combined efforts of the independents through 1877, 1878, and 1879. In the latter year, it touched five cents for the first time in the history of the business. Competition resulting in economies, in a revolutionizing transportation invention, the seaboard pipeline, in a great extended foreign market, brought down this market in 1879. Nothing else. Those who have read this history know what became of the competitive movement of these years of 1878 and 1879. They remember how the Producers' Union compromised its suits and abandoned its efforts for interstate commerce regulation. They remember, too, how, just before the great seaboard pipeline project was proved to be a success, all but one of the independent refineries were, by one means or another, 
persuaded to sell or to combine with the Standard, leaving the Tidewater without an outlet for its oil. Before the end of 1879, the Standard claimed 95% of the refining business. Now examine the chart for the effect on the price of oil in 1880, of this doing away with competition. Another sudden uplift of the price of refined, this time without the excuse of a rise or probable rise in crude. For three years oil had not been sold so high as it was in 1880 when the exporters began to take on their winter supply. An interesting contemporary account of this coup of 1880 and the way in which it was managed is found in the excellent monthly Petroleum Trade Report, published by John C. Welsh. It is dated November 1880 and headed Very Sharp Practice. There is made each day in New York what is known as an official quotation for refined oil. This official quotation being made as a matter of convenience in cabling the price of refined oil throughout the world. Refined oil not being sold at an open board, it is sometimes difficult to quote it accurately. But by having an official quotation this can be quoted, and the difficulty is supposed to be, in a measure at least, remedied. The official quotation is made by three petroleum brokers appointed by the produce exchange for that purpose, who meet each day after exchange hours for the purpose of establishing it. There is one party, and one party only, that have very large lots to sell, and so important a position do they hold in the business that their prices are ordinarily the market. Of course, to make transactions, their prices and buyers' prices have to come together, and transactions establish a market much better than prices offered to buy or sell at, but without transactions. At many times, if the standard do not sell, there are no transactions, and consequently the standard's asking price is leaned upon to establish an official quotation. During September, the official quotation went up from nine and three-eight cents to eleven and seven-eight cents with comparatively little demand as the foreign stocks were large and very little oil was required to supply the world's wants. The upward movement was, consequently, purely arbitrary. Arbitrary prices are, however, a part of the standard's everyday life, and I am not taking at this time any exception to them. All through October and up to November 13, the official quotation was 12 cents, or sometimes a little over and sometimes a little under and as this price did not meet the views of buyers to but slight extent, the standard was supposed to be exercising a Roman virtue in not selling. Twelve cents continued as the official quotation to November 13th without any wavering, but from the 13th to the 18th, while twelve cents asked by refiners continued in the quotation, such sentences as these were included at different dates. Other lots obtainable at eleven cents, sales at ten and a half cents offered at that, other lots obtainable at irregular prices from ten to ten and a half cents. On November 18, the quotation was ten to twelve cents. I give the following quotation of the New York refined market, as published in my Oil City Daily Report of November 11. The New York market yesterday closed, secretly offered and unsaleable at eleven and a half cents, and probably at eleven and a quarter cents by resales and outside refiners, and likely by standard, though they openly asked twelve. 
The point that seems apparent is that the official quotation of twelve cents ceased to be an honest quotation a considerable time before it was abandoned. The committee making the quotation can probably justify their position by the custom of trade of regarding the price of the standard openly asked as the market. Nevertheless, they, and the produce exchange whom they represent, were the bulwark from behind which the standard were able to get off their hot shot against the consuming trade in the United States and the consuming trade in Europe, who all this time were buying standard oil on the basis of 12 cents at New York, the supplies at the time being drawn from their stock in Europe, and from their various depots in the United States. But the performance of 1876 and 1877 was not forgotten in Europe. In 1879, the exporters and buyers from all the great foreign markets had met in Bremen in an indignation meeting over the way the Standard was handling the oil business. Remonstrances came from the councils at Antwerp and Bremen to our State Department concerning even the quality of the oil which had been sent to Europe by the Standard. John C. Welch, who was abroad in 1879, was told by a prominent Antwerp merchant, I am of the opinion that if the petroleum business continues to be conducted as it has been in the past in Europe, it will go to smash. The attempt to repeat in 1880 what had been done in 1876 failed. The exports of illuminating oil that year fell much below what they had been the year before. In 1879, 365 million gallons of refined oil were exported. In 1880, only 286 million gallons. Exports of crude, on the contrary, rose from about 28 million gallons to near 37 million gallons. The foreigners could export and refine their own oil cheaper than they could buy from Mr. Rockefeller. Competition was after him, too, for the Tidewater, whose refineries he had cut off, had stored their oil, built new plants, and were again ready to compete in the market. This third corner of the oil market seems to have convinced Mr. Rockefeller and his colleagues at last that however great the fun and profits of making oil very dear, in the long run it does not pay, that it weakens markets and stimulates competition. They learned a lesson in these years they have never forgotten, that when you make a scoop it must not be so big that you will never have a chance to make another one, that if you want to keep your power to manipulate the market you must use that power so modestly that the public in general will not realize you have it. Again and again the effect of the experiences of 1872, 1876, and 1880 crops out in the testimony of standard officials. Benjamin Brewster once said to a federal investigating committee which had asked if the standard could not fix the price of oil as it wished. At the moment many things may be done, but the reaction is like a relapse of typhoid fever. The Standard Oil Company can never afford to sell goods dear. The people would go to dipping tallow candles in the old-fashioned way if we got the price too high. The after-effects of the first-grade raids, then, were salutary. The Standard learned the limitations set on monopolies by certain great economic laws. But if the Standard Oil Company learned in the first attempts to raise the price of oil that they could not in the long run afford to make from 100 to 350 percent, they by no means gave up their attempt to keep their control and to hold up profits as high as they could without injuring the market 
or inviting too strong competition. If one will look at the chart showing the fluctuations from 1879, when control was achieved, to the beginning of 1889, one will find that for ten years the margin between refined oil and crude never fell below the point reached by competitive influences in the former year, though frequently it rose considerably above. Yet it is in this period that the Standard did all its great work in extending markets, in developing by-products, and in introducing the small and varied economies on which it rests its claim to be a great public benefactor. The first eight years of its existence had been spent in bold and relentless warfare on its competitors. Competition practically out of the way, it set all its great energies to developing what it had secured. In this period it brought into line the foreign markets and aided in increasing the exports of illuminating oil from 365 million gallons in 1879 to 455 million in 1888 of lubricating from three million to twenty-four million, and yet this great extension of the volume of business profited the consumer nothing. In this period it laid hands on the idea of the tidewater, the long-distance pipelines for transporting crude oil, and so rid itself practically of the railroads, and yet this immense economy profited the public nothing. In spite of the events development of this system, and the enormous economies it brought about, a system so important that Mr. Rockefeller himself has said, the entire oil business is dependent upon this pipeline system. Without it every well would shut down, and every foreign market would be closed to us. The margins never fell the fraction of a cent from 1879 to 1889, though it frequently rose. In this period, too, the by-products of oil were enormously increased. The waste, formerly as much as 10% of the crude product, was reduced until practically all of the oil is worked up by the standard people, and yet in spite of the extension of by-products between 1879 and 1889, the margin never went below the point competition had forced it to in 1879. The enormous profits which came to the standard in these years by keeping out competition are evident, if we consider for a moment, the amount of business done. The exports of illuminating oil in this period were nearly five billion gallons. Of this the standard handled well toward ninety percent. Consider what sums lay in the ability to hold up the price on such an amount even an eighth of a cent of a gallon. Combine this control of the price of refined oil with the control over the crude product, the ability to depress the market for purchasing, an ability used most carefully but most constantly. Add to this the economies and development Mr. Rockefeller's able and energetic machine was making, and the great profits of the Standard Oil Trust between 1879 and 1889 are easily explained. In 1879, on a capital of three million five hundred thousand dollars, the Standard Oil paid 3,150,000 dividends. In 1880, it paid $1,050,000. In 1882, it capitalized itself at $70 million. In 1885, three years later, its net earnings were over $8 million. In 1886, over $15 million. In 1888, over $16 million. In 1889, nearly fifteen million. 
In the meantime, the net value of its holdings had increased from $72 million in 1883 to over $101 million. While the Standard was making these great sums, the men who produced the oil saw their property depreciating, and the value of their oil actually eaten up every two years by the prices the Standard charged for gathering and storing it. But to return to the chart. With the beginning of 1889, the margin begins to fall. This is so in spite of a rising crude line. It would look as if the Standard Oil Company had suddenly had a change of heart. In the report of that year's business made to the trustees of the Standard Oil Trust, the following elaborate and interesting calculation was presented. The quantity of crude oil consumed by the Standard Manufacturing Interest in 1889 was 896,250,325 gallons, or 20,339,293 an increase over the previous year of 1973,589 gallons, or 2,835,085 barrels, an increase of 15.3%. The sales of crude oil by our interest for purposes other than their own manufacture were 135,788,959 gallons, or 3,232,832 barrels, an increase of forty three and a quarter percent over the previous year, making the total consumption of crude oil through our interest one billion thirty two million twenty nine thousand two hundred and eighty four gallons or twenty four million five hundred and seventy two thousand one hundred and twenty six barrels, an increase over eighteen eighty eight of three million eight hundred and nine thousand nine hundred and seventeen barrels or eighteen point three five percent and exceeding the consumption of 1887, which was the largest of any previous year, by 12.7%. The quantity of refined oil was 66,742,547 gallons, or 13,334,851 barrels of 50 gallons each. Of lubricating paraffin and compounded oils, 43,862,795 gallons, or 877,256 barrels, and of other products, 160,712,183 gallons, or 3,214,243 barrels, making a total of all products 871,371,525 gallons, or 17,426,350 barrels, valued at over $46 million. The average cost of the crude consumed in refining was 0.211 of a cent more than in 1888, while the average price realized per gallon of crude was 0.090 of a cent less, showing a decrease in the margin between the crude and finished product of 0.301 of a cent. This represents a saving to the consumer over what the finished products would have cost him if the same margin had been maintained on the increased price of crude of $2,697,000. This has been done without a corresponding loss to our interest, by a decrease in the cost of manufacturing and marketing, and by the increased quantity handled 0.204 of a cent, affecting a saving of $1,860,000.
and the difference has been more than made up by further reductions of cost of marketing by our distributing interest, as well as in the increased quantity handled. Although the average price of crude has been the highest this year of any of the last five years, the increase over the price of 1887, when the price on both crude and refined was the lowest for that period, being about 22 and a quarter percent, the average price of products has increased but 12 and a quarter percent, showing a saving to the consumer of 10 percent. We have therefore continued to make good the claim that the standard has heretofore maintained of cheapening the cost of the products to the consumers by giving them the benefits of the saving in cost affected by consolidation of interest. This certainly sounds just, even philanthropic. It is exactly what the consumer claims is his due, to have a share of the economies which undoubtedly may be affected by such complete and intelligent consolidation as Mr. Rockefeller has effected. But was it combination that caused this falling of the margin? As a matter of fact, this lowering of the margin was the direct result of competition. In 1888, a German firm located in New York City erected large plants in Rotterdam and Bremerhaven. They put up storage tanks at each place of 90,000 barrels capacity. They also established a storage depot of 30,000 barrels at Mannheim, and took steps to extend their supply stations in Germany and Switzerland. They built tank steamers in order to ship their oil in bulk. These oil importers allied themselves with certain independent refiners, and interested themselves also in the cooperative movement which the producers of Pennsylvania were striving to get into operation at this time. The extent of the undertaking threatened serious competition. In the same year, imports of Russian oil into the markets of Western Europe began for the first time to assume serious proportions. Russian oil had, from the beginning, been a possible menace to American petroleum, for the wonderful fields on the Caspian were known long before oil was struck in Pennsylvania. They did not begin to be exploited in a way to threaten competition until late in the 80s. In 1885, councils at European ports began to report its appearance. Fifty barrels were landed at Bremen that year as against 180,855 of American oil. In this year, too, the first Russian oil went to Asia Minor, where Pratt oil had long held sway. The first cargo reported at Antwerp was in March 1886. In April 1890, the Council at Rotterdam, in calling attention to the independent American competition, said of Russian oil, It is no longer a serious competitor for the petroleum trade of Western continental Europe. The Council said that while the American oil shipments to the five principal continental ports were fully four million barrels per year, those of Russian were less than one-tenth of that number. However, a growth of 40,000 barrels in five years was something, and the Standard Oil Trust was the last to underestimate such a growth. Prices of export oil immediately fell. There was nothing in the world that gave oil consumers the benefit of the standard savings by economies in 1889 but the competition threatened by Russia and the American and German Independent Alliance. The standard to offset it not only lowered its price, but it followed the German company to Rotterdam in order to put up an oil plant similar to the one which had been erected by those independents. They also purchased at this time the great oil establishments at Bremen and Hamburg 
which had hitherto been owned and operated by Germans. A full account of this new development in the oil trade was reported by the American Council at Rotterdam in April of 1890, and is to be found in the Councilor Reports of that year. Follow the lines a little farther. Notice how in 1892 the price of refined oil begins to fall, although crude is stationary. Notice how the refined line remains steady through 1893 and 1894, although the crude line steadily rises. This went on for nearly three years, until there was a margin of only three cents between crude and refined oil. The barrel, which is always reckoned in the official quotations of export refined oil, costs two and a half cents per gallon, and the price of manufacturing is usually put at one half a cent. The cost of transporting the oil was not covered by the margin the greater part of the year, 1894. Now, the Standard Oil Company were not selling oil at a loss at this time out of love for the consumers, although they made enough money in 1894 on by-products and domestic oil to have done so. Their net earnings were over $15 million in 1894, and they reckoned an increase in net value of property of over $4 million. They were fighting Russian oil and the independent combination started in 1889. By 1892, this combination was in active operation. The extent of this movement was described in the last chapter of this narrative. At the same time, certain large producers in the McDonald oil field built a pipeline from Pittsburgh to Baltimore, the Crescent Line, and began to ship crude oil to France in great quantities. It looked as if both combinations meant to do business, and the Standard set out to get them out of the way. One method they took was to prevent the refiners in the combination making any money on export oil. The extent to which cutting was carried on for two years, beginning with the fall of 1892, has been referred to in the last chapter, but is worth repeating in this connection. In January of 1892, crude oil was selling at fifty-three and a half cents a barrel at the wells, and refined oil for export at 5.33 cents a gallon in barrels. Throughout the year the price of crude advanced, until in December it was seventy-eight and three-eighths cents. Refined, on the contrary, fell, and it was actually eighteen points lower in December than it had been twelve months before. Throughout 1894 the standard kept refined oil down. The average price of the year was 5.19 cents a gallon, in face of an average crude market of 83 and three-quarter cents, lower than in January 1893, with crude at 53 and a half cents a barrel. After two years, they gave it up. It was too expensive. The Crescent Line sold to them, but the other independents were too plucky. They had lost money for two years, but they were still hanging on like grim death and the Standard concluded to concentrate their attacks on other points of the combination rather than on this export market where it was costing them too much. This is the end of Chapter 16, Part 1. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.